Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible Jordan Blue. Hello, Jordan. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I am so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We have so much we want to talk about. And our topic today is we're going to tell people why they will choose the wrong person. Mm-hmm. But before we get into that, I want to tell our listeners a little bit about you. For those that don't know, Jordan is a licensed marriage and family therapist and a relationship expert for young adults. She is the creator of Love Hacks, which is a podcast, couples workshop, and a 12 weeks couples program. She is known as the therapist that can get any couple out of conflict and can help any young adult on the dating scene stop repeating old patterns and ensure that the next relationship is the one that lasts. She received her master's from San Francisco State University and is currently in private practice in downtown Nashville, Tennessee. How are you today, Jordan? I'm so good. Personally, I'm doing really great. (laughs) Wonderful. I'm doing well, too. So let's just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. What made you decide to become a couples therapist? That is such a good question. I get that all the time when I tell people what I do for work. They're like, why? (laughs) Um, And so I grew up kind of in a different situation. I grew up with a dad, just a single dad, and he was 50 years old when I came along. So very unexpected. And as I grew up with him, I always was craving to see a romantic relationship up close. So like to the point where um, I would like get Barbies out to play with, I'd set them all up. And then the second I set them all up, I would stop with, with them because they're I had no idea how to actually like play out this like romantic relationship. And so that sort of like sparks this curiosity. Um, Skip to like when I'm like 10 years old, I took my dad's credit card and signed him up for three months on Match.com. And I made his whole profile. It was like from the perspective of his daughter. And I got it for him for Christmas. Of course, he thought it was hilarious. Um, He agreed to go on one date for me, but ultimately that didn't lead to anything. And so there's this whole childhood where I'm just dying to see what a relationship looks like up close, like a good one, a bad one, just any. And so Mm -hmm. I end up in this high school sweetheart relationship, which turns into a college sweetheart relationship um, and lasts about six years. And I really realized when I got into that after the honeymoon phase ended that I had no idea how relationships were supposed to work. Um, That sort of put me out on this mission to read every single self-help book that was popular, like the five love languages. And um, I was consuming everything and nothing really did the job. I mean, it was all really interesting. Um, But that relationship ended up ending in a pretty powerless goodbye. And that whole relationship in this curiosity I had for relationships and the answer that I couldn't seem to find led me into feeling very passionate about the fact that so many of us, pretty much all of us, want an amazing, long-lasting relationship, 
But the divorce rate, the success rate is so low. Um, the success rate so low, the divorce rate so high um, that I thought that was pretty unfair. And being an Enneagram 8, if you're familiar with that, is, you know, injustice is a pretty big passion of mine. And it frustrated me so much that even when someone really wants to make a relationship work, they're seeking information. They're actually reading the books. They're Googling all the blogs and Huffington Post articles that they still might not find the right information to make it work um, and that there's just so much heartbreak. There's so much more than that's needed. And so I set out on this mission that I was going to do whatever job that I thought could make the biggest impact in changing that divorce rate. And so mm-hmm. I decided to be a couples therapist and I you know, mapped out those 10 years that it would take and I kept my head down and push right through it just because of the desire, one, for me to find a successful relationship, um, but then to help other people find it too. Wow. Okay. There's so much we need to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) So let's continue on this couples therapy route and this divorce rate that you that you brought up, because I'm sure you are at no shortage of finding work and finding couples that need your help. Yes. Many people will say we're in a relationship crisis right now with a 50 percent divorce rate. But Uh you would actually say the real numbers are much worse than 50 percent. Yeah, I would. Unfortunately, Um, I think that we often associate quantity of years together as quality, um, which isn't necessarily true. So we assume that if there's a 50-50 divorce rate, that that means 50% are unhappy and divorcing and everybody who stays married is really happy, which we all know people who are married and not happy. And I wouldn't consider married but not happy as success. And so, Zach, let's assume that you and I clear our schedules for the next Saturday and you and I, you come to Nashville and you and I go and crash 10 weddings. Um, we would ha- probably have sounds a like great fun. time. I know. It sounds like a great time. We'd eat a lot of cake and dance and we would hear some amazing vows and some amazing speeches. And you and I, after every single wedding, would probably check in with each other and say, like, wow, that was a really sweet couple. They mm-hmm. seem very committed. Their vows were really, you know, heart moving. And we would say that 10 times. And then let's say after that long day of 10 weddings that you and I sort of went our separate ways and we came back together 10 years later to check on our couples. There would be five that would already be divorced. And so if we wanted to visit those couples, we'd have to visit separate houses. Um, And some of them would already be remarried within that 10-year period of time. So there's sort of half of that chunk. Um, And then from the overall group of 10, actually six of the 10 couples would have experienced infidelity by that point. And so some of them are going to be together. Some of them, that's going to be the reason they divorced. Um, And so if we look at the five couples that are still technically married, right, which is what we typically call like the quote success rate is 50%. Uh We went to visit all of them. Statistically, there's going to be two from that five that are from the infidelity group. They didn't get help for it. They just pushed it under a rug. They're probably staying together because they have kids. And it's going to feel real passive aggressive when we visit that couple. And so that's two. And then there's going to be at least one couple of the five that are still married that are married but not happy. So like maybe they're married and they're arguing all the time or maybe they're married. They're already sleeping in separate bedrooms and they're just living like roommates to get their kids out of high school. And so that leaves us with two couples. And statistically speaking, only two couples of the 10 that we saw get married are going to be 
both still married at year 10 and actually really happy where you and I would kick back and have a great time talking to them. They would probably tell us that the vows they would do on that day would be so much more deeper and, um, you know, genuine and authentic and that they've grown so much. And so when you think about that, 20 percent success rate is what we're talking about. Um, I heard someone joke once that if anything else had that bad of odds, the government would shut it down. So if there was like a beach where eight out of 10 people got bit by a shark, you know, it would shut down. Or if there's a roller coaster where eight out of 10 people flew off the roller coaster, they would shut that down. But marriage, we just give a thumbs up and give some great wedding gifts and throw a $40,000 day and say good luck. And the divorce rate is high, but the success rate, right, is is very, very low, even if we're talking about people who still stay married. 20%. Mm-hmm. That's horrible. Not only is 20% terrible, but <laughs> we're also talking about marriages. Right. So I'm imagining two things happening. First of all, I'm sure these people on their way to getting marriage had a bunch of not successful or not happy relationships. 100%. So maybe they went through 10, maybe 20, maybe 30, you know, first dates with somebody right. where they decided that this person wasn't the right person for them. Right. And then they finally find the person after all their own filtering, after all their own decision makings, final, like absolute best of their ability, they find the one person that they decided is the person for them. It's a person that they assume is their soulmate, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and then 20% of that actually is the ones that succeed. So right. why? Why is this happening? Why is it so hard to find? What are people doing wrong? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think that first off, you know, I think the myth when I say those stats is that, wow, 20% found their soulmate. 20% found someone, quote unquote, compatible. And so I think that's always the assumption that, wow, 20% just chose really well, kind of what you're saying. They, they landed on the right person after 30 first dates. Um, but the thing is, is that, at least from my perspective, what I've seen in my office is that every single couple of those 10 that we see, which represents right all the couples, everybody actually hits the same wall in the first 10 years. Um, that's the reason mm. people come in to see me. And you know that can consist of being in extreme conflict with each other. Uh, again, someone cheating, which there's this thing called the seven-year itch. A lot of people cheat around the seven-year mark. Um, you know, And so when everybody hits that wall, it's not that 20% just like skipped past it really easy. It's that 20% mm-hmm. said, I don't believe that there's such a thing as one soulmate that's going to make it all really easy like these fairy tales. I believe that you get to decide who your soulmate's going to be, that you achieve compatibility. It's not a precursor. And so this wall is just that. It's just a wall. And I've decided that I want to get through the wall with you, my partner. I don't want to start over and get over the wall with someone else. And that's the difference between that 20% and the 80% is that the 80% see the wall and they're like, wow, you must not be the right person. Um, or like, I must have chosen wrong. And so it's like, well, wait a second, right? There is actually a way to get through the wall. Um, and kind of what you started to hint at, you're right that there is um, sort of this behind the scene movement happening that makes us choose the person that we did. Let's say, let's say it's date number 30 for our first date that we choose as quote unquote, the person that we think is the best person to jump into marriage with. There is actually a lot of behind the scene factors that make us choose the person that we do that actually makes them almost a like more difficult partner to get through those 10 years with. 
So we have two things we need to cover. We have one, we have to work with the person that we've chosen. Right. And two, we have to choose the right person. Right. So let's go back to work with the person that we've chosen because, mm-hmm. you know, you're a couples therapist. So you see this and you help people work through this. I right. heard you just say earlier that everyone, every couple is going to hit a wall at some point in their relationship. Right. right. And the difference between the people who uh, succeed in their relationship and don't succeed is how they approach that wall and how they overcome it. Mm-hmm. Is this wall the same for everyone? And how do you let couples get over this wall? Yeah. So first question, is it the same for everyone? Man, I would say that really 95% of people hit the same wall. Um, Almost every single couple that walks into my office tells me that they're not communicating and that they're Mm. fighting quite a bit, that they're having these what feels like pretty repetitive arguments that Mm -hmm. start from, you know, did you get the milk or like, why are you driving like a maniac? And somehow ends up at, do you even love me? (laughs) And um, it's, you know, what I call, I call it a cycle because you do the same thing every time and it never ends up in a good place, but we sort of keep repeating it. And a lot of couples fall into this dynamic where one of them sees the best solution at finding connection with their partner as pursuing all these conversations, which, you know, are arguments, right? So there's one person that when the argument starts up, they're like, we are going to talk about this. We're not going to mat- to bed angry. We are going to find a solution. And even when it goes very left and it gets very heated, they still feel like the best thing is to push through. On the other hand, you have a partner that I would call sort of the one that's withdrawing, the withdrawler. And the second that they feel it going left, that it's getting heated, they're feeling threatened, they're feeling like, oh no, this is headed towards one of those big fights, they shut down. Mm-hmm. They'll get defensive and they'll try to shut down the conversation as quick as possible. So if you can imagine every really important topic that probably needs to be discussed in a marriage or with your partner coming up, one person's pursuing the heck out of it and the other one is just trying to get away, that obviously doesn't equal a resolution at any point in the conversation. And so I have these couples come in and one person is feeling very rejected, that pursuer, like my partner won't talk to me about anything. It doesn't matter how I start it. It doesn't matter when I bring it up. They never want to talk about it. I feel very alone in trying to repair the relationship. And the other person is sitting there saying, I'm being attacked all the time. Why would I want to talk to you? (laughs) You're attacking me. You're coming at me. You're criticizing me. I feel so inadequate that I don't feel like there's anything that I could say that would make a difference. And that is really probably, again, 90 or 95% of people going through that. And not always, but most of the time, if it's a heterosexual relationship, the female is the pursuer and the male is the withdrawer. Mm. And they both see what they're doing as what's going to save the relationship. You know, uh, one way that I like to think about it that's kind of funny is uh, if a couple is like walking through the woods and, you know, they're just on a nice stroll and and they see a bear and the bear sees them and, you know, the bear doesn't look super happy. And so the couple looks at each other and says, hey, we really want to get out of the woods safely. And they're like, yeah. And they sort of, you know, do a hoorah to that. And uh, the wife says, hey, you know, uh, the bear's already seen us. If we run, I think the bear is going to chase us, come up behind us. I think the best way to keep us safe is to approach and attack the bear. Like we've got to confront the bear. We've got to figure out the way to come up on him and to defeat this threat. And the husband's like, you know what? That sounds like a really bad idea. Like, I think we should take our chances (laughs) and run from the bear and just, you know, do our best to run. Now, 
if the husband runs from the bear and the bear gets to him, right, jumps on him, the, the husband will fight back. He'll get really defensive, but ultimately just so he can flee again. And so both people in this situation feel like the way to keep their relationship safe is either to confront or to flee. They both have the same goal in mind, but when they're not talking about the fact that they both want connection, it makes each person feel like their partner isn't on their side, that they, you know, either again are feeling alone and wanting to quote unquote confront the issue or that they're alone and wanting to avoid conflict. And that leads to a lot of misunderstandings and a lot of resentment. I love this bear analogy. You know, I'm imagining a really happy couple <laughs> having this beautiful walk through the woods and there's, you know, noticing how beautiful life is and how beautiful the sun is and the trees are. And then indeed, they come across this bear and one person wants to run and the other person wants to stand tall and scare the bear away or at yep. least deal with the problem <laughs> head on. Right. So you have the conflict and then you have the two approaches to the conflict, which are completely diverging. Yep. So what's next? What do you do in this situation? Yeah. So I think the biggest misunderstanding when it comes to this couple that's come in and they're headbutting over how to deal with the conflict, like one person's feeling rejected, one person's feeling really attacked. At the end of the fight, when they finally disconnect, they walk away, they're really angry with each other. They both are sitting in a story, an internal story. So most of the time, the pursuer, which is usually, you know, the wife in the situation, is feeling, like I said, very alone. She's feeling like she's not loved. And every single time her partner gets defensive to something she brings up or eventually shuts down, gives her the silent treatment, that only confirms to her more that she is alone, that she's not appreciated for what she's trying to do for the relationship and that she's not loved. Now, that's her story, right? And everything that her husband does in that cycle is confirming that for her. Now, on the flip side, in the other side of the house where the husband's sitting feeling disconnected, his story is that he is inadequate. He's failing. He is not meeting her expectations and he feels ashamed and there, he feels like there's nothing he can do. Pretty hopeless. And every time she criticizes him, which he hears this stuff coming up as a criticism, Every time she comes at him, follows him, pursues, prods, he feels like, man, here I am getting it wrong again. I can't help but get it wrong. What's the point of even trying when I'm never going to get it right? And everything she does in that cycle confirms that for him. And so they sit in those in those stories. And it means that anything can open up Pandora's box again to spark that fight that goes to that story. And what I have couples see is that where the big misunderstanding is, is that when, you know, your partner, let's say you're the husband, when your female partner starts to get really critical and attacks you, it's not meaning that your story is true, that you're inadequate. It means that she is in her story. She's acting out of this threat of I feel alone, so I'm going to attack. I'm feeling unloved, so I'm going to attack. To see that your partner reacting in that really threatened way doesn't mean that your story is being confirmed. It means that they are in theirs and you need to reassure them in that story and vice versa, right? When the wife sees her husband getting defensive, the second she brings up that topic, the second that he um, starts to shut down and she starts to think, man, here it is. That's confirming that he doesn't care, that I'm alone. What she needs to realize is that when he starts to shut down, 
It's because he's feeling so inadequate. He's in his story and that's why he's shutting down. And what's kind of this amazing thing that happens in our session is I ask both people, I say, hey, do you think that your partner has a bad heart? Do you think they are vindictive and really motivated to hurt you? And, you know, they both look at each other and go, absolutely not. My partner has a great heart. And then I say, okay, then why are you assuming that in this fight that they're doing everything they're doing really purposely to hurt you? They are hurting, right? Hurt people, hurt people. And so when I get them to see that and then start to teach them how to, one, look for the cues that your partner is going to their story, uh, teach them some tools of how to get out of the cycle once it sparks up, and how to go in and move towards your partner instead of away and speak to their story, it cuts the fight immediately right there. Speak to their story. That was what was coming up for me is listening, listening to your kind of take on relationships is... First of all, we have this issue and we have both people caught up in their own separate story. Yeah. And that can be very isolating, you know, because you're in a relationship to feel connected, to feel close, to feel intimate with your partner. Mm -hmm. And then you might feel like you have totally different worldviews of the same situation and you feel incredibly disconnected. And what I'm hearing from you is that the best way to build that bridge is to sort of try your best to understand your partner's story. Mm hmm. Absolutely. And to speak to it, right? Because if I'm sitting in a state of not being triggered by my partner and my partner's just like, hey, I'm feeling so inadequate. I'm so afraid to fail at our relationship and to fail you. When I'm not triggered, I'm going to say, oh my gosh, I hate that you feel that way. Where did that come from? Um, I absolutely don't want you to feel that way. I never mean to make you feel that way. And when we're in a vulnerable state of of conversing, I can really reassure and speak to him. But when I'm in my own story, right, again, I'm seeing anything that he does as a threat. And what sucks is once we're in that cycle where we feel really heated and really triggered, you know, the blood flow has moved from our prefrontal cortex that says our partner's not that bad to the brainstem where we're hearing our partner talk like they're Charlie Brown's teacher and we feel very threatened. We no longer are picking up on the fact that our partner is a good person, that they have the best intentions, that they're just triggered. Um, And we don't give them the benefit of the doubt. One time I heard someone say that, um, you know, if you think about your kids or your pets, if you're a pet person, um, let's say you have a dog and you come home and your dog like chewed up your shoe. You're going to be really upset, but you're going to be like, oh, it's okay." Like they didn't have a walk today. They must have felt really lonely today. Like you don't assume your dog hates you. Um, Like we give so many benefits of the doubts to kids, to our dogs, to our cats, to our animals. We never assume that it means that we're alone or they don't love us or that we're not a good enough owner or parent. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, with our with our partners, the second that they sort of throw a fit or get triggered, we assume that our story is true, our worst fears are true, and we start to act out of that as if there's somebody to fear, as if there's somebody that really wants to hurt us. That's really beautiful. I just love the idea of kind of a, not discussing the issue head on immediately, but just tuning in to this person that you love and that you care about and considering that they have a good heart. Um, You also mentioned this idea that hurt people hurt people. And what's coming up for me is this idea that usually the issue that people are discussing 
is rarely the deeper underlying issue. You know, people may argue about the dishes and who's washing them or money and how you're spending it. But what I'm hearing from you is that underneath like the surface level argument is people are feeling fearful, they're feeling afraid, and they're feeling lonely. Absolutely. Yeah, very, you know, I think lonely, um, unlovable and inadequate are the biggest ones. I think universally, we all struggle with this feeling of not feeling good enough. And we are wired to look for someone to confirm that. Um, And actually, when somebody just loves us really well, we typically question like what their motive is behind it. We almost get more skeptical (laughs) when someone's not triggering that. And, you know, so people hit this wall, they feel lonely, they feel disconnected, and they probably feel like they've chosen the wrong person to yes. spend the rest of their life with. Absolutely. And so what are what's the next step? If, you know, for a listener who's like, oh, my God, this is exactly what I'm currently going through with my partner. I want to be in that 20% success rate. I want to be the couple that meets this conflict and overcomes it. What am I going to do? I think that that goes back to, are you with someone, hopefully, if you're married, you are with someone that has what I would call as a growth mindset versus a victim's mindset. You know, I think in this situation, a victim would say, you know what, we just must have chosen wrong or you know what, uh, fate, like this just wasn't fate for us to work out or hey, this is how I am, get over it. Uh, I've always been this way. And they just sort of toss up their hands, um, like what what's meant to be will be. Um, and I think someone with a growth mindset, or if you can tap into the growth mindset with your partner, you both are going to say, if we have to get through this wall with everybody we would attempt to have a forever long relationship with, I'm going to choose for it to be you. I want to go through this with you. And then what you do is you want to make sure that you find the right resources. I think there are a lot of resources out there. And I think there's a lot of wrong ones. I think there's a lot of stuff out there that sounds like a really cool idea, like the five love languages. I'm not going to hate on the five love languages, but it really is just like a neat idea. It's not going to save anybody's relationship. And so there really are some uh, sort of big overarching themes. I haven't got to talk about them yet. I think we're going there. But, you know, understanding like why you are attracted to who you're attracted to, being able to be in touch with this like subconscious pull one towards a certain person, but also actually a pull towards making the relationship one that you would actually say on paper you don't want it to be like. We actually uh, push over the first few dominoes to make this relationship something that maybe we've seen in the past that's familiar, even though we would say logically that that's not the kind of love we want. There's really a lot of sabotage that's going on. So I think you need to understand What is it that you're sabotaging? Why are you sabotaging? And then I think that you need to make sure that you find out what your style is in relationship. Are you wired to be more anxious or are you wired to become avoidant of vulnerability and to make sure that you are holding each other accountable to being secure and vulnerable and not going into that tug of war back and forth where only one person is leaned in at a time, almost as like cat and mouse game. And then really finding a really great couples therapist. I always say there's a million couples therapists out there, um, but they're not all very trained. And I think that um, you've got to make sure that you find someone that couples work is their bread and butter and that they're really familiar with 
um, you know, this attachment work or this uh, kind of couples cycle and conflict work uh, acronyms that you're going to want to look for behind their name is going to be EFT or PACT. Um, and you're going to want to make sure that you find someone that's really trained and really driven to help you. And then you go with the growth mindset. You go with the um, mindset that you're going to do whatever it takes to get through that wall because becoming the 20 percent is a choice. Mm-hmm. That's not luck. That's a choice. It is a solvable equation if you get in touch with the right information. And, you know, like I told you at the beginning, I had this six-year relationship that I really cared about that ended. I had a four-year relationship after that that ended in a very similar way, although they were really different people. And it wasn't until I found this sort of uh, goldmine of information about all that stuff I was mentioning about this conflict cycle, about our styles and relationships, about how we sabotage, that actually gave me the tools to have a really amazing, successful relationship with my partner now. And had I not found that, I probably would have sabotaged this one the same way that I had the six and the four year one. And so it really does come down to one, that growth mindset, and two, making sure that you're discovering all of these hard wirings for us to sabotage relationships. Yeah, I love that. I just love the growth oriented mindset because it's so different than what a lot of people think and believe about relationships. They think that they're going to find the one and then once they find the one, everything will be perfect for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. So let's tap more into this idea of like how we might want to grow in relationships to overcome conflict. So I heard you mention a number of things that we can do to grow. Yes. One of which is seeing a couples therapist who yes. is basically a professional that helps you grow mm-hmm. in your relationship. And you also mentioned finding some other resources and also sort of gaining a level of self-knowledge about your own patterns and wiring yes. that keeps coming up in, in your relationship. So like for our listeners that don't know much about something like attachment theory, something yes. about imago relationships, in kind of almost layman's terms, what are some wirings and patterns yes. that we have to become aware of and we have to grow out of in order to be successful in our relationships? Absolutely. So I think both of those things are really important. And yeah, let me break them down. So you know, this word imago. Imago means image um, in Latin. And it's this idea that, you know, when we're born into a family, as a baby, we get to learn what all the words mean. You know, depending on where you grow up in the country, you either call a Coke, a pop, or a soda, right? And um, so we're just learning what all these different words mean. And when it comes to love, we learn what that means too. And I always think about opening up like a notebook paper and as a little kid that's learning everything, we write love at the top and we watch how our parents interact with each other, the good and the bad, and we write all that down. And then we watch how they interact with us when they say that they love us. And we write all of that down. And then we take that journal and we hold on to it. And when we become adults and we start to go out on all these first dates, all, all of these relationships spark up for us, we hold that notebook up next to them and say, do you match what love is to me? What I've been shown that love is. Now, the problem with that is most of us don't grow up with the Brady Bunch family. Most of us grow up in homes that even if we could say that we know that we were loved, that they weren't vulnerable, that our parents were not emotionally available to us, that there wasn't a lot of vulnerability in the in the family. There wasn't emotional conversations. You were sort of taught to, you know, go deal with it in your room alone or like, you know, don't cry over spilt milk. And we don't really talk about that stuff. And so what happens is we actually seek people that feel familiar to that imago. 
We seek what's familiar and we reject what's unfamiliar, which is why you hear that concept of, um, you know, good guys finish last. Because uh, the the females that grow up with a family where, you know, kind of unconditional love isn't really a thing, lots of affirmations, vulnerability, uh, showing up, consistency, if that's not your imago, then yeah, you're going to dismiss all the good guys and probably just keep that good guy as a good friend. Um, you're not going to feel this kind of drawing to them. And so another sort of big thing that happens with this imago when we're on the dating scene and we're dating people that, you know, maybe match that. And so they're pretty inconsistent. Um, they don't really show up for us. They, they're not super available. Um, they're confirming our story. If we felt like a kid that we weren't fully loved or good enough and they kind of make us feel that way because they're so hot and cold about the relationship, we feel what we feel like is chemistry. It seems like we have so much chemistry mm-hmm. for all these people that are so bad for us. I have so many people come into my office and say, Jordan, I have the most chemistry for these really bad people. My, my friends tell me all the time that my picker is way off because I know how to pick the bad ones. Why? And here's the thing. When someone is hot and cold with us, in and out, they make that story from our childhood feel like it's coming true again where we're not loved, we're not good enough, there's something wrong with us. We feel a lot of anxiety. And when we feel that anxiety, unfortunately, our brain codes that as chemistry. I say, wow, I can't believe I care so much that he hasn't written me back. I must really like him versus the guy that's really consistent texting me whenever I text him back. I don't feel any anxiety about that, right? Like I know he's messaging me back. And so it causes us to chase these people that make us feel insecure because we think that, quote, I felt a spark with that person. And we feel a spark in chemistry for those people that fit our imago, which you can see how dangerous that can be if we didn't grow up in that idealistic home. And I hear people tell me all the time that what they grew up with is not what they want, right? So like the love they're used to, aka the imago, isn't what they would write on a piece of paper as the kind of love they're looking for. However, We don't find a lot of chemistry or that initial spark with people that, quote unquote, are just good for us. That Because it feels like that's not love. Whatever we grew up seeing, whatever that imago was, we call that love. That's what feels like love. So you grow up with a lot of yelling. Guess what? A partnership where there's a lot of yelling, that feels like love. And so what sort of happens outside of that, you know, people say all the time, kids are so resilient which kids are very resilient. However, what people forget to think about is that actually resilient kids don't equal resilient adults. And so as a kid, you're growing up in a family where there's not a lot of emotional accessibility. Nobody's really talking about their emotions. There's not vulnerability. Nobody's very empathetic. You're not seeing a great relationship between your parents. They're not super affectionate or they argue a lot. And you have to figure out as a kid how to deal with this. So you either, one, get very anxious which we're going to call anxious attachment, and you cling Uh to your parents. You don't want them out of your sight. You don't really like going to friends' houses to stay the night because you just aren't getting what you need, and so you're going to cling to them to get as much as you can. It's like somebody being very thirsty in the desert. Like, you're going to get every drop out of the water bottle. 
um, versus somebody who grows up in that environment might become avoidant of their attachment figures, these parents. So that's avoidant attachment. And they they go to their room, they turn on loud music, and they just shut everything out. They don't really talk about their emotions. They, you know, repress it. They compartmentalize it. If they have to cry, they cry with their closet door shut so that nobody sees them. And they learn at a very early age that there are not people that are emotionally accessible for them. And so I always tell people, that's great that your body did that, that your brain figured out what to do to get you through that really hard situation as a kid. The problem is, is that we walk in to adult relationships trying to choose one, somebody that matches the imago, so they're going to be problematic already. They're going to have all the right things going on to trigger us because our brain really wants to tie up loose ends. If we didn't heal that relationship with maybe it was like our mom that was really avoided, If we didn't heal that relationship with our mom that was really avoidant, we, our brain is wired to find somebody that will create that same dynamic of us not feeling loved so that we can overcome it and then heal from it. The problem is, is we're going to use the same tactics and defense mechanisms that we had as kids, which means if I was avoidant as a kid, I'm going to walk into a relationship and I'm going to be really avoidant. I'm going to be hot and cold, up and down. I'm going to make my partner an insecure mess and I'm going to end up having another wound created because I have not figured out the tools yet to how to repair that kind of relationship. And so we walk into relationships being anxious, being avoidant. Actually, anxious and avoidant attachments are drawn to each other like magnets. You know, two avoidants together, there's no emotional glue. Two anxious people together is going to feel weird for both of them and somebody's going to move out into the avoidant spot. And so we have this cat and mouse game Someone's always the one that's more interested. The other one's not texting back for eight hours. And that means that we never feel secure. And the only way to get the avoidant to lean in is to finally lean out as the anxious one and say, hey, look, I'm over this. And then they'll lean in, but only temporarily because we are not used to a love or an imago that looks like vulnerability, that looks like security, that looks like being emotionally accessible. And so we repeat these patterns in relationships and end up marrying the person that felt the most like love, which means the most like what we grew up with, which typically is not what we would say we had wanted. And here we are with no tools, no ability to how to know how to turn this around, feeling like, oh my gosh, I've always felt like I wasn't good enough. I've always felt unlovable. And here I am in a relationship where I'm feeling that way again. Maybe it's true. And we keep spiraling and the people that we choose over and over again are only the people that confirm that for us. And so we start to think maybe it is true because everyone treats me that way. And I always tell people, no, it's it's not that you're the common denominator in the sense that everyone sees how inadequate you are. It's that you always choose people that are going to make you feel that way because they're so avoidant of vulnerability. And so it just spirals and spirals and we end up choosing again, not necessarily the person that's the most right for us, but the person that's the most familiar. Yeah, that's so fascinating because what's coming up for me is we choose the wrong person because they match our understanding of what love is that we sort of, uh, that was imprinted in our brains when we were uh, being raised by our parents or our caregivers or whoever raised us. And but what also comes up is that that's also why you will be the wrong person to somebody else, because you have all this, uh, I want to say maybe negative patterning or conditioning that you are bringing into the relationship. Right. Yeah, I think that, you know, I have a lot of couples come in and sit down and they say, 
we really trigger each other. Like we have these like opposite issues, these opposite fears, and we are this like perfect, horrible match to confirm all of our worst fears. Um, And they're amazed to find out how similar their relationship is compared to their parents. And, you know, I have a lot of couples say, you know, at the beginning, it didn't feel this way. At the beginning, it actually felt really different. Like I loved this person because they were so caring and considerate and it didn't feel anything like what I grew up with. Right. And so the thing is, is our attachment style. So that avoidancy, that anxiousness about relationships where we catastrophize everything that does not kick in until we pass a new state of what I call permanence in a relationship. So when people go from just casually dating to boyfriend, girlfriend, when people go to living together, when people get engaged or they get married or they have a kid or, you know, they have two kids. Every time we go into a new state of permanence, our brain does this thing and says, oh, we are now more permanent in this relationship. That means we're supposed to be dependent on this person. And then our brain says, what has it been like for us when we've been dependent in the past? And it does this really quick rewind and scan and comes back with, oh, it's been really painful to depend on people in the past. I've been rejected. I've been abandoned. I felt insecure. I felt unloved. I've been tricked. I've been lied to. Oh, no, this is not a good thing. This is really scary. This is really threatening. I'm probably going to get hurt again. And then all of a sudden, we just took this really great step with our partner And immediately we start to become avoidant or we become really anxious and start to look into things. We get really jealous, which is why actually satisfaction rates in relationships after someone gets married three months later, their satisfaction tanks because these attachment styles start to trigger. Because they just entered the ultimate state of permanence with their partner. Right after somebody has a baby, a couple has a baby, it's 67% of those couples immediately experience a huge decline in satisfaction. When people move in together, there's that cohabitation effect. They immediately feel a drop in satisfaction together because their attachment styles get triggered the second the relationship starts to feel vulnerable. At the very beginning, it's not that vulnerable yet. This person doesn't have the ability to hurt you. But once they do, once you're more permanent and dependent on them, all that attachment stuff triggers immediately and we start to repeat and act out that imago. Well, I feel like you're providing a very concise explanation for this 20% success rate um, based on this idea that we all have this sort of unconscious patterning that that is going to come up later in our romantic relationships. And not only that, but the deeper into a romantic relationship that we go, more comes up. So let's go back to that sort of 20% that mm-hmm. do succeed and that are happy. Yes. How are they dealing with their triggers? How are they dealing with their conditioning? How are they dealing with their patterns? Yeah, I love that question. So I think first off, right, once they figure out who is the anxious attached and who's the avoidant attached. There are a lot of resources out there once you know that information. One of my favorite resources is called Wired for Love by Stan Tatkin. And he talks about if your partner is avoidant, when you start to see their avoidance triggered, what can you do to make them feel like they're not threatened and move them back into a secure position? And then the same goes the other way. If your partner is anxious and you start to see them get really anxious, start to worry, start to catastrophize, 
How do you make them feel secure again? And so one, I think you've got to find out what your attachment style is, what your partner's is, and work together to stop triggering it. Um, You know, secure attachment is the goal for that 20%. And the 20% end up in secure attachment. You and I would feel how secure that couple was when we visited their house. Um, And secure attachment looks like I know I'm lovable. I know I'm good enough. I know I'm adequate. And I know that you think that I am. And I know that you're not trying to hurt me and that we're really in this together. And you have both feet in this relationship. You don't have a foot out. Couples who are securely attached, they don't threaten the relationship. A big fight doesn't lead to them saying, I'm done. It never Mm -hmm. leads to that. There is this sense that we are really in this forever, meaning I can be vulnerable because I don't have to plan for what if this doesn't work. So that's one thing, the attachment stuff. You've got to figure out what role you're each playing and you've got to get the resources like Wired for Love, finding out how to work with your partner to make sure the relationship feels more secure. So that's one thing. And then I think the second thing is, is you've got to map out that cycle Be aware of um, what you typically do in that cycle and gain some resources for how to stop it. One thing, one like little tool that I give my couples is I tell them to call what I call boomerang. So, you know, a Frisbee, you throw a Frisbee, it never comes back. And the idea of a boomerang is you throw it and it comes back. And so if a couple gets heated, they get into their cycle, they realize they're cycling And they're both, again, hearing Charlie Brown's teacher at this point, it's not going to go anywhere good. Somebody calls Boomerang. They decide when they're going to come back to the conversation. So it might be just 20 minutes or it might be, hey, tonight after dinner. They they go separate ways. They calm down. They come back together. They check in. What was the story you were telling yourself that caused you to get defensive or critical? They touch base there, confirm that each other's story is not true. And then they start to talk about that topic again from a place of I want to understand you more than I want to be right. Um, You know, marriage is a team sport. So if I win and you lose, we both lost. (laughs) And even Mm. if I win, I, you know, I love a good debate. If I beat, quote unquote, beat my partner in an argument afterwards, when I'm feeling really disconnected, I don't feel like I won. And so I think that is a part of it is being able to stop it when it's going the wrong direction. But coming back to it, we don't want to just put it under the rug. I think that's the second thing. And I think that the couples that end up in the 20%, they are very conscious about what they grew up with, what kind of their default mode is to create in their relationship um, and what they want. And then they start reading materials um, about how to make sure that they're consciously living in that relationship in manual mode, getting what they want in love, not what they're used to, not just repeating these old patterns. Um, And I think a lot of that comes down to actually finding out how to be more vulnerable. A lot of us struggle with vulnerability and most of us are in relationships where we do not feel validated ever. And I think the 20%, what they do When our partner says something, even if I disagree with my partner about what they just said, I can still say that makes sense because I'm not saying it makes sense as an I agree with you, but it does mean that from your perspective with your backstory, I can see how you got to that conclusion. And, you know, I am I pride myself on being a very like direct and active therapist in the room. I think there are a lot of more passive therapists out there. Um, And the thing is, is we are struggling so much with vulnerability in our relationships and we don't feel validated at all that a lot of people will pay for a session with a pretty passive therapist just because they're dying to be listened to, vulnerable and validated. 
And so that 20%, they're validating each other. They really feel like each person gets the other one's perspective, even if they don't always agree. Um, one of my favorite books on vulnerability is Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. Um, a lot of my male clients love listening to that one on Audible. And it's, you know, it's it's all about vulnerability. You've got to have that in relationships to feel like you're so tied together that you can't just leave. Um, and so that's another part of it. And then again, kind of the last piece is, Getting rid of the soulmate myth. One of my very favorite quotes is that compatibility is an achievement. It's not a precursor. Meaning you're either going to achieve compatibility with this person and you're going to put in the work with this person or you're going to end it. You're going to go back to square one, restart, choose someone very similar in lots of ways. They're going to create all the same cycles with you. And then you're going to have to go through that with them and achieve compatibility with them if you want it to work. So it's not a matter of like, I have to pick, quote, one right person or it won't work. It's I have to decide who I want to achieve compatibility with. And as long as I have a growth mindset and not a victim's mindset and they have a growth mindset, not a victim's mindset. And we own the fact that we have the control over solving this equation or not the entire dynamic changes. It no longer feels like we're helpless or out of control. It just feels like, man, maybe we don't have the tools that we need and we need to go find them. That's why it's not working out. Not because we don't love each other, not because we're not committed, not because we don't want to be with each other, not because we want to be with somebody else, but because we just have never learned these tools. Again, when I was growing up and I would try to play Barbies, I would try to act that out. I didn't know what a relationship looked like. I had no idea, right? So don't be so hard on yourself. Most of us have not seen an ideal relationship. Most of us cannot quickly name a relationship we would even want to model after. And because we mimic behaviors, that's how, you know, life works. We just kind of mimic what we've seen. We've got to work really hard and really consciously to change our definition of love to what we want it to be rather than what that imago was. Wow. So much to think about, so much to consider. Um, I would literally love so many of the things you said around vulnerability, around building security, around validating your partner. And I really hope that our listeners who are in relationships and who are in marriages really start to take some of this advice to home. And I want to I want to hear so much more and talk to you so much more, but we are running out of time. <laughs> so um, we'll get to your resources in just a moment. I just want to finish with one more question because I do want to go back a little bit in time in a relationship because you mentioned how the triggers we bring into a relationship can create all these challenges. But let's go back to like those very first few initial dates, because you mentioned how yes. we don't choose like the nice guy because yes. it's just safe <laughs> and kind of boring. And if I have, let's say I had an emotionally distant caregiver, I'm yep. going to choose an emotionally distant uh, person yep. to enter into a relationship with. So for those people going on dates, how, mm, what sort of advice do you have for them uh, to choose the right person and not just buy into their unconscious patternings that, that's going to propel them forward into a, uh, I, I, I'm trying to avoid the term negative. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say a more challenging relationship yes. than one that is more conducive to happiness. Yes, yes, yes. I love that question. This podcast would not be complete without answering that one. Um, so I think there's actually a couple of things that you can do. Again, I'm all about uh, oh, knowing what you can do, what control you have, and you really do have control here. So the advice I would give, there's a couple things to do. When you're on the dating scene, 
and you are looking for a lifetime kind of relationship. You're looking for someone that's going to have that growth mindset and that wants what you want. They are willing to get vulnerable and they are interested in commitment. Uh, First step is if you're on the online dating scene, which most people are, so Bumble or Hinge or whatever it is that, you know, is your flavor, you need to make sure that your profile's purpose is not just to get a right swipe. Your profile's purpose should be to eliminate people who are not looking for what you're looking for right there when they first see your profile. So for example, I could write that I'm fun and outgoing and looking for, you know, someone cool to hang out with. And that's going to attract avoidance who are not looking for a relationship. That's going to attract people that are looking for a relationship. And then I'm going to have to sort through all of those people on the back end. What I should do is say, you know, all the cool things about me, whatever I'm going to throw on there, the cheeky comments. And then I'm going to say, I am looking for something that's not a dead end. I am only interested in going on a date and pursuing someone that it will add up to be something or that they are in the state of mind for it to become something. They're in that phase where they're looking for that too. Because what's going to happen is the person who's avoidantly attached or avoidantly attached and not interested in overcoming that, not interested in getting vulnerable or getting into a committed relationship, they're going to see that and go, heck no, and left swipe me. And then I don't ever have to sort that. And the people who are secure or maybe have been secure and a little anxious that are definitely looking for a serious relationship, they're going to say, oh, my gosh, how refreshing. And they're going to right swipe me. And so one, that's the first step is the goal on the online dating profiles is not just to be liked. That makes it a really exhausting game. Um, But it's actually to get people that aren't looking for what you're looking for to not swipe on you and for the people that are to swipe you so that you've already narrowed it down. So that's the first step. And then I think the second thing is once you get on that first date, the second date, the third date, it's going pretty well. You know, you're able to have a hold of conversation and laugh. You need to very quickly in that relationship within, I would say, the first month, bring up to them what you're looking for. And I do not mean that you say, hey, so would you want kids one day? And they say, yeah. And then you like, no, oh, we must want the same things because we both want kids one day. No, I mean telling them, hey, um, I'm not, you know, going to start drawing your name and hearts on my notebook, but I am not interested in a dead end relationship. So Know that every time I continue seeing you, the energy I'm putting into this relationship right now, it is 100% with the intention that it could become something serious and that that is my goal, is that if I'm spending time in a relationship, it's because it's evolving into that. And I want to know if that's what you're looking for too. And if they say yes, then you say, okay, great. Let's stay in open communication and keep checking in with each other to make sure we're still feeling that way. If at any point it starts to feel like a dead end, like maybe we have a value difference, then tell me right away. And I have clients who are to run anxious and say, oh no, but if I bring that conversation up, they're gonna run. Yes, the avoidance will run, (laughs) which we want. Like if somebody's not interested in that, we want them to walk away. And so very early on before we spent much time on this person, before we've fantasized about them too much, before our imago and our anxiety is triggered too much, We want to make sure that we have very clearly laid out what we are looking for with them and made sure that they're on the same page as us. Um, And then I always also tell people that if you go on a date with someone and they're a really, quote, nice person, nice girl, nice guy, but you just don't, quote, feel the spark, push yourself to go out on a few more dates. Make sure that you give it enough time because what you might not be feeling is anxiety. 
and you're mistaking that for chemistry. Um, on my very first date with my partner, we had a great date. Like it was an amazing date, one for the books. It was a super long date. It was so fun. We both like wrapped our favorite song. We high five that we never wanted to get married. We both tried to pull the avoidant card at the same time. And, uh, you know, it was, it was overall a really fun date and I had a great time. And the very next day, my roommate was talking to me and said, um, so do you think you're, when are you going to see him again? And I said, I don't know if I'm going to see him again. And she's like, what? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I don't know. She's like, wasn't it a great date? I'm like, yeah. And she's like, well, he seemed so nice when I met him. I'm like, yeah, he was nice. And she's like, well, why wouldn't you? And I said, why? Well, I, I just don't know if that, that sparks there. And she said, oh, you mean he wasn't disrespectful and he showed up and was really consistent. And so he's not making you anxious. And I was like, oh, right. Touche. And so I pushed myself on a few more dates and then like I felt mad crazy about him. Um, and so it's just that like initial margin we have to push through. We've got to lose the idea that there has to be like love at first sight, um, that we actually a secure relationship does start out a little slower um, and that that's OK. That that's not unromantic. That's actually very romantic that you sort of um, achieve love and like achieve compatibility and that it's not this random love at first sight spark. That's usually a, a sign that it's that imago, which we want to actually be almost a little skeptical of like if we feel that intensity right away. Um, because again, that's probably anxiety. So I think extending the dates with the person that feels very normal, very secure, very steady. That's that's really consistent. We actually want to go on a few more dates with them and not give up on them too quickly. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Um, you know, I'm just hearing like what it takes to create a healthy and successful relationship model in your own sort of mind and heart and then entering into that with all your relationships from the first date, looking for that growth mindset, looking for that safety and security and Absolutely. validation that is so crucial to just a happy relationship. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jordan. You're so wise. I've learned so much from you in this past hour together. I really want to thank you so much for being on the show. I'll put your links and websites in the show notes, but what's the best way to contact you? What's the best way to learn from you? What's the best way to book an appointment with you? Absolutely. So I actually have a really special link for anybody that's listening to your podcast specifically. Um, so if you actually go to jordanvirginia.com slash Zach, my parents spell my name really odd. So it's J-O-U-R-D-A-N, Virginia, like the state.com slash Zach. There is a special offer there for just, again, your podcasters. And if you put in your email, I'm actually going to send you a free five-day course on relationships. So there's going to be something on there about how to get out of conflict how to spice up the desire and passion in your relationship again. Um, there's also going to be a link for a private Facebook group that I have where I'm always posting new resources. I'm doing Facebook Lives all the time to do Q&As. Um, and it's also going to send you my favorite resource list. So all my favorite videos, uh, audibles, books for all of these different topics um, so that you can learn more about attachment work, uh, how to have a good relationship, how to get out of conflict, how to pick, quote unquote, a right person, somebody who's going to have that growth mindset. Um, and it'll also be the email list that that sends out the very first notification of uh, an upcoming love relationship course I have that's about to launch and also any future workshops that I do. So that is for all of your listeners. And then anybody that is Nashville local or coming to Nashville, you can just go to jordanvirginia.com and fill out a prompt on there to hop on a phone call with me and see if we'd be right to work together. And then from there, we could book a session. 
What a busy person you are. I know. I love this work. There's so many couples to help. <laughs> Thank you so much for contributing to Learn to Love. Thank you so much for your work in the world and helping couples and helping others bring more love into their life. Thank you again for being on the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening. We hope you also enjoy the show. Stay in touch with us at theheartcenter.com. Thank you, Zach. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.